Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, April 16th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition, this special edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. This episode uh, features our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing clashes in the Republic of Sudan between the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese Armed Forces. Kenya has launched an Earth Observation Satellite in East Africa. We'll have details on that as well. There are further deaths attributed to rebel activity in the West African state of Burkina Faso, and reports indicate that the fighting in Ukraine is intensifying. In the second hour, we look more into the further details on the security situation in the Republic of Sudan. Finally, we listen to a rare archival radio broadcast from June 20th of 1964 with Malcolm X and Charles B. Silverman, among others, discussing the African and African-American questions of the mid-1960s. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with uh, Tony Allen uh, from his album entitled Film of Life.
my brothers Don't think about Johnny, my sisters Running away from misery Running away from misery Running away from misery And you can't find yourself in a double misery It's not this time to leave your misery behind From the bad situation in your country You decide to leave misery behind From the bad situation in your country Now you jump into the boat Now you jump into the boat To cross the ocean With all your family For better situation across the ocean, but you never arrive.
The music of uh, Tony Allen from the West African state of the Federal Republic of Nigeria from the album entitled Film of Life. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, April 16th, uh, 2023. Uh, We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And we're going to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. An official from the Sudanese Army uh, earlier today said that they have successfully regained control of the air base at Meroe Airport uh, in the northern state. Yesterday, the Rapid Support Forces had taken over the airport and air base and even released videos showcasing their soldiers alongside captured Egyptian officers. However, 24 hours later, the Sudanese Armed Forces managed to reclaim the air base uh, from the Rapid Support Forces, according to a military official who spoke uh, to the Sudan Tribune. The military official further disclosed that the Army had dealt a severe blow to the rebellious militia forces in terms of military equipment. He also shared that over 100 soldiers and officers of the Rapid Support had been apprehended. Uh, earlier today in the afternoon, while the attack was taking place against the Rapid Support Forces uh, in Meroway, uh, the parliamentary group released a video where mil- militia military said they were in full control of the airport. The deployment of the RSF in the northern Sudan city was the point of no return in the relationship between the regular army and the paramilitary force. The military source said the RSF forces fled from Melway, taking several military pilots of the Egyptian army captured uh, yesterday. The military added that over 100 RSF vehicles have withdrawn uh, from the airport and that the army is presently pursuing them. And uh, you can read uh, more details uh, on the situation in uh, Sudan. Uh, Also, later on in our program, uh, we'll have uh, more analysis over uh, the developments uh, in the Republic of Sudan. In other news, in the East African state of Kenya, the first Earth observation satellite was launched into space yesterday after two aborted attempts earlier in the week. The African country's Taifa-1 was among the satellites of SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket, which lifted off from Vandenberg Space Force Base in California. The rocket launch had to be scrubbed twice previously due to bad weather. Kenya's satellite will fly over the country every four days and gather data for agriculture, land, and environment monitoring, according to the Kenya Space Agency. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. In the West African state of Burkina Faso, at least 40 members of the security forces have been killed by gunmen in the northern part of the country, as dozens of others were injured, according to authorities uh, earlier today. Six soldiers and 35 volunteer fighters, civilians who assist the military, were killed near the town of Wa uh, yesterday afternoon, Northern Region Secretary General Kuga Albert Zongo said in a statement, uh, the 33 wounded were hospitalized in stable condition. He said the attack comes amid surging violence in the conflict-ridden country that is linked to the Al-Qaeda and Islamic State groups. Thousands have been killed and around 2 million people have been displaced, 
Earlier this month, at least 44 people were killed by Islamic extremists in multiple attacks in the north of the country. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, taking place uh, in Ukraine, a Ukrainian YPR-675 armored fighting vehicle of Dutch origin um, made its uh, hit uh, by the was hit by the Russian Eastern Battle Group uh, near Ugladar. The battle group spokesman Alexander Kordiev uh, said earlier today, the Cornet anti-tank missile system hit a Dutch YPR-765 armored vehicle with a 25-millimeter automatic cannon near Ugladar, uh, he said in a video posted on the ministry's Telegram channel. According to the spokesman, Russian troops repelled a strike, a HIMAR, repelled a strike, a HIMAR strike in the southern Donetsk direction. Two rockets were downed. Apart from that, Russian forces thwarted Ukraine's exploratory attack on the battle group's positions. Four uh, Ukrainian soldiers were killed. He also said that the penicillin uh, artillery recognizance system spotted Ukrainian MSTAB and D-30 horwitzers near the settlements of Gulyapol and Shervnaya Krasnista. Uh, the horwitzers were destroyed uh, by the Gitasent and MSTA systems. The official representatives of the department, Lieutenant General Igor Konashekov, noted that the Operational Tactical Aviation Missile Forces and artillery of the Russian Armed Forces groupings of troops defeated 92 artillery units of the Armed Forces of Ukraine at firing positions, manpower, and equipment in 127 districts. And the Russian Armed Forces hit the command post of the 125th and 102nd Territorial Defense Brigades in the Donetsk People's Republic at Zaporizhzhia region. Uh, Russian Defense Ministry spokesman Lieutenant Igor Konashenkov uh, told a briefing on the special military operation in Ukraine uh, earlier today. The command post of the 125th and 102nd Territorial Defense Brigades were hit in the areas of the settlements of Yampolovaka in the Donetsk People's Republic and Zalezinoye in the Zaporizhzhia region, he said. In addition, Konashenkov said the Operational Tactical Aviation Missile and artillery units of the Russian Armed Forces hit firing positions, personnel, and equipment of 92 artillery units of the Ukrainian Armed Forces in 127 districts. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published thousands, tens of thousands, in fact, of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do uh, is go to our website at the Pan-African Newswire, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. 
If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, April 16, 2023, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. I don't want you to work all day, but I want you to be true, and I just want to make love to you, love to you, love to you. All I want to do is wash your clothes. situation uh, in the Republic of Sudan, uh, where clashes between the rapid support forces and the Sudanese armed forces have taken place over the last two days. Uh, Earlier today, it was announced that a humanitarian corridor was opened uh, to allow uh, those uh, who have been trapped 
battle fighting in Khartoum and Abdurman. And uh, we'll know uh, soon uh, that this has helped uh, the situation inside the country. Also, the African Union Commission Chair, Musa Faki Mahatmat, uh, has uh, pledged to visit uh, Khartoum uh, on a mediation mission in order to stop the fighting inside the country. Let's listen uh, to some of the latest reports on developments in the Republic of Sudan. We begin this news hour with breaking news from Sudan. After nearly two days of fighting between the army and the powerful paramilitary rapid support forces, or RSF, the UN says a temporary pause in fighting has been agreed on humanitarian grounds. The Sudan has seen a bitter power struggle since Saturday when the airstrikes and gun battles began. This has been the state of play. This is where things stand at the moment. Fighting began spreading across the country. The worst of the violence, however, has been centered on the capital Khartoum and on neighboring Umdurman. Both sides have been vying for control of Sudan's state broadcaster of the presidential palace and the airport, as well as multiple military bases. The army has now agreed to a safe passage corridor for urgent humanitarian cases. However, aid workers are also at risk in all of this. The UN's World Food Program says three of its employees have been killed. The WFP's executive director has released a statement saying, while we review the evolving security situation, we are forced to temporarily halt all operations in Sudan. WFP is committed to assisting the Sudanese people facing dire food insecurity, but we cannot do our life-saving work if the safety and security of our teams and partners is not guaranteed. All right, let's go straight to Hiba Morgan in Khartoum. Hiba, what can you tell us about this pause in the fighting? Has it begun and is it holding? Well, as per both sides, the Sudanese army and their rapid support forces, it's a period of three hours where those who are in need, and let's focus on that, those who are in need would be able to get out uh, of their homes and out of the out of Khartoum city to be able to access facilities such as uh, hospitals and uh, uh, health centers. So it looks like it's very targeted with regards, with regards to who can actually uh, get on board on that humanitarian corridor. It's not been specified as exactly where those corridors be open and both sides say, said that they do reserve the right to defend themselves should they feel that they are under attack. So it doesn't look like it's something that, uh, th that would hold or would give civilians at least some kind of assurance that they would be able to venture out in the streets. Lots of concerns here. But there's also a bit of movement uh, on the streets of Khartoum. Many people who were trapped here in uh, Khartoum city when the fighting broke out in the early hours of Saturday morning are now taking this time to uh, get out of the facilities they were trapped such as hospitals and schools uh, around the vicinity of the presidential palace and the general command of the army and trying to make uh, their way to safety during this three-hour period that was granted by both the rapid support forces and the army after facilitation and mediation by the UN. So, Hibbert, just to be clear, who is this aimed at? It's civilians who live in or near the fighting, is that right? It's aimed at the civilians who were trapped in areas of fighting, places like uh, schools around the vicinity of the presidential palace, around the vicinity of the general command, 
hospitals where uh, people could not seek treatment or hospitals where people went for uh, renal dialysis, for example. There have been people who are trapped in such health facilities, and uh, medics have been calling on both sides, the RSF and the Army, uh, to open such corridors. So these are the people that those corridors are directed for. Again, it's not specified which routes they can take, where they can head to, but the urgent uh, uh, issue here or the important matter here is that they should leave the vicinity of uh, the fighting areas, areas such as the presidential palace, areas such as the general command of the army headquarters, and areas where their bases of the rapid support forces, which have been uh, facing airstrikes since the early hours of Sunday morning. Uh, Hibba Morgan reporting live from Khartoum. Thank you very much. Now let's speak to Hulud Khair. He's the founding director at Confluence Advisory. That's a think tank based in Khartoum. Uh, she joins us from uh, Khartoum right now. Hulud, so first of all, your reaction to this three-hour a pause in the fighting to allow civilians to get out of the most dangerous areas. I think it's a positive sign that at least the generals can come to some kind of arrangement. But as we speak, um, the time frame is meant to be from 4 to 7 p.m. And as we speak, I can hear shelling um, not so far from my house and both light and heavy artillery um, in the background. So clearly... Um, one of two things, either the generals misled uh, the UN, which wouldn't be the first time, or they don't have as much control of their troops as one would hope. Okay, that's really interesting because the, uh, this, this temporary, this three-hour pause in the fighting is from 4 to 7 local time, and it's currently 5 p.m. local uh, where you are. You're reporting that there is still shelling going on, so... We, we know that the uh, pause in the fighting isn't completely holding, uh, and you mentioned perhaps control of the troops is an issue. Yes, absolutely. I have heard uh, from friends around the city that they have been able to move around to some degree and that some shops are open to allow people to restock. But, of course, there are broader problems. For example, people who are income independent um, are not able to get access to insulin because pharmacies have run out, partly because... Uh, the uh, airports are closed, of course, because of the fighting. So there are ripple effects um, to the border um, conflict that cannot be uh, ameliorated by this uh, three-hour window. Do you feel safe going out of your house right now, being in the street in Khartoum? Uh, well, considering what I can hear outside of my uh, windows, no, not at all. A great many people will feel that. Certainly on social media, a lot of people have been saying that they don't feel safe enough uh, to leave their homes. And I think part of it is also that many people don't trust uh, the, the general to, to, to abide by this. And uh, the, the SRSG, the special representative of the, of the Secretary General, Paul Cassatis, in his statement about the, um, the sort of temporary safety corridor, said that this is a sort of a gentleman's agreement. It's based on trust. Of course, neither side um, uh, is, is sort of um, beyond their word has given any kind of mm. indication they'll fix by this. But we already know that these generals do not keep to their word. So I think that lack of mistrust means that many people don't feel safe to leave their homes. Where do you see this going? Well, the damage that we've seen from the generals in the past 36 to 48 hours doesn't indicate that they are uh, willing to sort of sit down and end this in, in any kind of permanent way. I think they both have been um, using sort of um, war propaganda, if you will, to try and frame their actions as firstly in self-defense, and secondly, 
in defense of Sudanese democracy. And so, you know, agreeing to a, a temporary uh, sort of ceasefire in order to avail safety corridors falls into um, those ploys to, to get to frame their actions as in sort of a humanitarian and, and democratic way. Um, but I don't think that will carry um, much favor or indeed get much traction with many of the Sudanese Sudan citizens who have had to live through the past uh, 36 to 48 hours in, in anxiety and fear. All right. Hulud Khair, founding director at Consulence Advisory in Khartoum. Thank you so much for joining us. Osama Syed Ahmed has more now from Meroe in the north of the country. We've been hearing gunfire of both light and heavy weapons, which was likely to signal renewed fighting here within the vicinity of Merawe Airport. Soon, it all came to a halt, and what remains is the plumes of smoke from the vital installations within the facility, close to its control tower. As you can see, this is the aftermath of the fighting that began a short while ago. The Rapid Support Forces had said they had seized control of the Marawa Airport, claims denied by senior sources we contacted in the Sudanese Army here in the northern province. They confirmed the airport is under the Army's control as the armed forces deal with what they're calling small pockets of rebels, an apparent reference to the Rapid Support Forces. And uh, that was a report uh, on the situation in uh, the Republic of Sudan, uh, where there have been clashes for the last two days between the rapid support forces uh, of uh, Hermete and uh, the Sudanese armed forces uh, led by uh, General Abdel Fattah al-Bahan. Uh, here's another report uh, that uh, was issued uh, earlier uh, this morning on the situation in Sudan. Hello, welcome to the program. I'm Lucy Gray. The power struggle taking place in Sudan has now claimed the lives of at least 56 people, with almost 600, 600 injured. Sorry, Among the dead, three UN workers who were caught in gunfire at a military base. The United Nations Secretary General has condemned the fighting between the army and another military group, the Rapid Support Forces. There are fears the violence will delay the planned transition to civilian rule in Sudan. Latest reports say the situation is getting worse. There are now reports of fighting around the country with eyewitness accounts of Sudanese army airstrikes in the city of Omdurman. The target is an RSF base northeast of the capital Khartoum. Well, Mohamed Osman from the BBC's Arabic service is in Sudan and sent us the latest by phone. Yes, uh, the fighting is still uh, continuing between the two parties, Sudan Army and Rapid Support Forces in many parts of uh, uh, Khartoum, but the huge, uh, huge battle in uh, army headquarters, uh, Sudanese army headquarters in central Khartoum, uh, where uh, the British battles and other strategic sites in this area. Uh, according to eyewitnesses, the, 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 the battle is very, very happy, and they, they use you know, huge guns uh, between the two uh, fractions. Also, there is the report that uh, the uh, Sudan's army you know, also attacked some uh, military base uh, belong to rebel uh, support forces in Durman and outside Khartoum, uh, including Kassana, but Sudan, in Sudan. Also in Darfur, there is, uh, the fighting was occurred today. Uh, uh, we are continuing like, like what happened last uh, 
last day, but uh, the tune about this claim that they, you know, control for the um, main, you know, uh, races, but uh, uh, so that the, the fighting is still continuing until now. Yes, it's quite hard to hear, hear you, actually, because the line isn't that great, but we'll persevere. Um, just, I think you were just saying it there, but the, be, each side have been making counterclaims about who controls uh, important buildings, like we were hearing yesterday about who was controlling the airport and, and government buildings. Can you say anything more on that? Yes, uh, the two parties are still uh, claiming that they are controlling of, about the important building and important uh, in, uh, uh, sites, but uh, as, as I mentioned, the, the, the fighting has to continue at this site, including uh, army headquarters, uh, there is a, a military base uh, for the Arabic Fatshapokos in Durman. Still, the fighting is continuing between the two parties. And what has it been like for you, Mohammed, there over the last two days in Khartoum, trying to go about your work? Yes, uh, the, according to the situation in the ground, the, 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 the fight will continue because so far no one can you know, get to the final point. The, the fight will still continue. In all the parties, the same situation to, 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 to yesterday today. So I think the, the fighting between the two parties will continue for these weeks or days. That's Mohamed Uthman, who is in Khartoum for us. And let's speak now to Beverly Oching, who is from the BBC's monitoring service and based in Nairobi. We were hearing there from Mohamed uh, about the, some of the fighting that's been going on. We've been seeing images of fighter jets flying overhead and getting reports from witnesses of, of bombings. What more can you tell us about the fighting that's going on right now? Well, some of the latest tallies that we're seeing from a prominent doctors' union is that nearly 70 people have been killed in just two days of violence. There have been clashes largely near military installations, so in Khartoum, in the northern part in Meroe, where initially there had been heavy deployments through the week of both RSF and the Sudanese army. And they are both making very, very competing claims about areas that they have seized or areas that they are disputing each other having taken. So like this morning, the Sudanese army said that the general command was not taken by the RSF, contrary to some of the reports. But it has been frustrating getting a true picture on the ground because State TV has just been playing music, peace music, unity music and messages. And most of the media is only posting stuff on social media. And that's been the, the biggest point of news being able to come out through Sudan. Yes, and as you say, we do know uh, that so many people have been killed and hundreds injured. We've been hearing from doctors uh, on the ground calling for safe passage for ambulances um, and also calling for international aid for the hospitals in, in Khartoum and the areas which are being affected. Yes, there have been. There was an appeal for medical aid, but there were also calls for a ceasefire because the fighting would curtail any possibility of medical aid being able to reach victims or hospitals. We do know that the airport has been closed. There are no flights going in and out of Khartoum, so it will be difficult for there to be any delivery of external aid into Sudan. Of course, it's been in a state of conflict. The economy is is ailing. They do need international support. There have been calls from regional powers and the international community for there to be a ceasefire, but it seems that the escalated violence and even the rhetoric coming out from the two military leaders, that is Hemeti, who commands the RSF, as well as Burhan, who is the interim president, it doesn't look like it's about to go down.
Yeah, we've had the, the UN calling today for a ceasefire as well, as you mentioned. We've also got this Arab League holding an urgent meeting. I just see one of the lines coming out of that is that Egypt's called on Sudanese parties to the conflict to ensure the safety of all Egyptian interests in Sudan. Have either of the two sides uh, today called for any mediation from, uh, at all? So as of last week, there had been some planned mediation between Hameti and Burhan. But overnight, Burhan said that he's ruling out any talks with the RSF. And there was a change of tone because now we're seeing the army is increasingly referring to the rapid support forces as a militia. They are, putting, they are trying to malign them because this is a narrative. They're competing for the narrative both in the media as well as in the public. But it looks like with the army's stance, there's no possibility of talks at the moment, but perhaps with some international and regional pressure, there might be some window for mediation by the Arab League and other actors within the region. Is there any sense uh, that you know of, of what actually sparked this latest uh, upsurge in violence? Because we had been hearing that there'd been this, this framework agreed in terms of this transition to civilian rule, and then this happened. Well, yes, one of the biggest issues with Sudan's political reform process since the coup in April 2019 has been the unification of the armed forces. So that is essentially the integration of the RSF into the army. There have been concerns that having a powerful force outside the national army could lead to various centers of power, as we are seeing now. So this framework agreement, it accelerates that integration, which was opposed by him. He wanted a five to ten year timeline. But then all the parties were calling for a shorter period of integration. So that has led to this sort of bloodbath that we're seeing. It has been a worry for Sudan over the years. The fact that the RSF is quite autonomous outside the army command, despite the fact that it is within the intelligence and the army services. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking us through all of that. I appreciate your time. That's uh, Beverly Ocheng, who's from the BBC's monitoring service and based in Nairobi. Thank you. Welcome back. And you're listening to uh, reports uh, from the Republic of Sudan in regard uh, to the current security situation inside the country. And uh, right now we want to listen to an analysis of the short-term as well as uh, medium-term and long-term implications of developments over the last uh, two days in the Republic of Sudan. Of course, uh, there's been reports of uh, deaths uh, among dozens of people in the fighting uh, between the rapid support forces and the Sudanese uh, armed forces. Let's listen uh, to this additional uh, report. From partners to enemies, the Sudanese army is battling the paramilitary rapid support forces. It's a power struggle that has turned into a fierce armed confrontation. But how will this play out? And is Sudan's unity in danger? This is Inside Story. Welcome to the program. I'm Darin Abugeda. The streets of Sudan are once again seeing the devastating effects of conflict. Political differences are plunging the nation into further instability and threatening to bring full-scale war. The latest violence began on Saturday after weeks of tension between the army and the powerful paramilitary group known as the Rapid Support Forces. Millions of people in the capital Khartoum are at risk. Water and electricity have been cut in many areas. 
After years of coups, protests and political instability, the people of Sudan were getting ready for a new government. But now those plans are at risk as the threat of an all-out civil war looms over the country. The former Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok, who had a crucial role in the fragile democratic transition, is pleading with both sides to stop the fighting. My first message is to General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and the leaders of the Sudanese military and to Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo and the leaders of the Rapid Support Forces. The exchange of fire must stop immediately and the voice of reason must rule. Everyone will lose and there is no victory when it's on top of the bodies of our people. All right, let's take a closer look at what's led to this unrest. So the most recent bout of instability emerged in 2019. That's when the military and the rapid support forces ousted the longtime leader, Omar al-Bashir, after months of mass protests. Two years later, they carried out another military takeover, this time by pushing out Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok, who was seen as the face of the transition to democracy. Military leaders signed a deal with politicians last year, in it, they promised to pave the way towards a civilian-led government and fair elections. But that has yet to happen. A new government deal was scheduled to be signed two weeks ago, but disputes about how to integrate the rapid support forces into the army escalated and delayed the process once more. We'll now bring in all our guests joining us from Khartoum. We have with us Mariam al-Mahdi, who's the leader of the National Ummah Party and a former foreign minister of Sudan. Ala Eddin Nugug, a spokesperson for the Sudanese Professional Association, a part of the Forces of Freedom and Change Coalition. And also Dalia Mohammed Abdel Munam is joining us, who's a Sudan-based activist. Thank you for your time with us on Inside Story. Mariam al-Mahdi, a uh, first to you. Just earlier this month, your Secretary General of the National Umma Party said that the political process to restore transitional civilian rule has reached its final stages, and we hope that it will be completed in the coming days. So have these latest developments come as a shock to you, and what's the official reaction of your party? Uh, thank you very much, Ms. Devine, and I welcome you and all your uh, followers and your guests. Uh, actually, uh, this is, uh, came as, as a expected uh, uh, surprise because uh, we knew for the last at least six weeks things were escalating to the maximum between the two uh, heads of the uh, armed groups, uh, the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid uh, Deployment Forces. And though they were both of them committed to the uh, uh, framework agreement, which uh, was also, as mentioned by you, uh, finalizing in the uh, last steps after we finished the five uh, pledged uh, uh, workshops, uh, ending by the SSR uh, workshop, which also uh, ended in, an, uh, in, in, a, in a hostile way, let me say. So it was a, like an introduction that things are not going well between the two, and that would definitely affect the, uh, uh, so the political... What is it, Maryam Al-Mahdi, uh, that was uh, missing? What was it in that agreement that was missing or that was wrong with that agreement that got Sudan to the point it is at today? Because also, at the time, your head of the political bureau, uh, Mohammed Al-Mahdi Hassan, said that your party was actually hoping to convince the non-signatories to, to come on board on that agreement. 
Two, it, uh, this actually we, we, we had two uh, obstacles, a, 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 a outstanding issue between the two uh, armed groups or the uh, heads of the, of the armies, uh, the head of the Rapid Deployment Force and the head of the uh, Sudanese Armed Force. This was a problem uh, regarding the SSR, the security uh, sector reform. And that is about how, what, what comes first, the, uh, 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 the reform in the, in the security sector or the merger of the security sector. This was a, all the time a, 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 an issue of, of debate. And for that, there was a, a technical committee three of, from each party to settle that. And actually, uh, before even this uh, technical committee, already things on the political background, both of them agreed and signed to 37 principles to, according to which the security sector reform should be uh, done. And this also was signed by all the heads uh, of the signatory okay. groups. Okay, let's bring in one of the signatories. The Thank you so much. Let's bring in Dr. Alaeddin because your group, in fact, was one of the signatories to that agreement. It was really meant to usher a, a new era, a new political process for the country. What's gone wrong? Yeah, thank you for the interview, Devin. The problem is that uh, they, were, they were not both committed to the agreement. Let's say frankly that. They are saying that, but one of the generals was really committed that is the Rapid Support Forces General Hemeti. But the army leader was saying so, but intentionally he was not committed to that. That appeared clearly in the workshop of the SSR, where the army paper saying a lot of things that against democratic transition. They were asking for independency in their strategies, in putting the army strategies and the military strategies. They were asking for not to be under the civilian leadership, and they were asking for the command center of the SSR and the, the process in which the DDR will be under them, while the Rapid Support Forces were committed to the transition, uh, democratic transition, they were committed to the SSR command center will be under the civilian leadership and will not be under a militant and they were committed that the military strategies and the army strategies will be under the civilian leadership. So this is a major, a major difference in the mindset and thinking between the two generals. And even when they signed, when, that, when they signed that agreement of 37 principles, General Hemeti said clearly, guys, we are signing, but I hope that all will be committed. That is, that is the issue. He knows that Al-Burhan will not be committed for that, exactly. And that the Muslim Brotherhood in the army, the people in the army, will not make this, will go. And that's what happened in the media. A lot of the Muslim Brotherhood people in the army and outside in the media, they were spoiling the agreement. And they okay. were spoiling the fire and making more fire between the RSF and the army and they reach what they want by what happened yesterday. And okay. in the 15th of April yesterday, Let me in the morning, there was a committee that I said, Mariam Sadiq, uh, uh, the committee with the head of Al-Hadidris, and they was asking and starting working to de-escalate the position. But okay, the let me just stop you right there for a moment. Let me just stop you right the there for a moment. Rapid support forces camp and things escalate. 
Uh, let me bring in Dalia, also joining us from Khartoum. Dalia, so not long ago, as we were mentioning a moment ago, the Rapid Support Forces and the military, they cooperated together to uh, derail Sudan's transition to democracy by spearheading the coup in 2021. They worked to overthrow Ahmad al-Bashir in 2019. So they seem to come together when they absolutely have to. What was it, in your opinion, that, uh, that got them to this point that we see today? No, they, they, uh, thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. They, come, they came together or they would come together when it suited their own needs. Right. Not necessarily the needs of the country. And what happened now is, for me, it's very basic. It's a struggle for power. Uh, it was all very, there was a lot of the delays in signing the agreement and the framework kept, you know, kept coming up and it kept, kept, kept being pushed back and back. And it was very clear that was a big, obstacle standing between it was the merger, the time frame of the merger, the, you know, the conditions they kept putting in and the negotiators kept trying to brush it aside and say this is okay and they, they kept trying to placate both these sides. But it was very obvious that neither of them was willing to give an inch and neither of them was actually came in with, a, with, with full sincerity that they wanted the framework to succeed. And what we, what's been happening since yesterday, it's very clear to me that this is the end game for both of them, and it's a power struggle at this moment, and the ones who are paying the price and paying the very hefty price are us, the people. You keep talking, I mean, you, you, you mentioned that this is about power. What's at stake if both parties lose their power? Are we talking here about more economic interests? Are we talking about uh, the personal ambitions of Burhan and Hamati? What is it exactly, or, or is it both? I would say the ambition of the entities, both entities, the, uh, the RSF, where they've come from and what they are now, and the army, the institute of the army, this is the Sudanese army. Uh, Himiti has seen his power and his position grow in the past few years, and this is obviously somewhat of a threat to the army. And don't forget the army is still very much Islamist influence. The, uh, you know, the, rem uh, the remnants of al-Bashir's rule is still very much in play today. They, were, they, they never went away. They've always been there. And they've started to re-emerge in the past few weeks. So they've become more vocal. They've become more outspoken. And, you know, it's very... Uh, for the, so the power play was between the army. And Burhan, for a lot of people, was seen as he couldn't take a position. So he was being pushed by the Islamist factor in the army to take a stand, and at the same time he was being pushed by, you know, the negotiators to take a stand. And the, so it all okay. came to a head uh, let yesterday. Me, let me just get Mariam's, think, Mariam's uh, take on this, on this point specifically about the Bashir-era loyalist, uh, uh, Mariam. There are some reports that suggest that there was internal pressure within the Burhan camp from the top brass not to sign that framework agreement because they feared that a new political agreement would, would harm their economic as well as their political power. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, I think actually things are very complex within this relation. Actually, for some time, the private or the personal relation and trust between the two men was the basis of the uh, linkages between their two institutions. But uh, because of so many uh, developments that took place in the last four years, they grew uh, separately for many reasons. They got uh, separate uh, uh, economic interests and, uh, and, and investments, 
separate uh, uh, regional and international relations and separate political and social uh, backgrounds uh, for their support. That's why uh, the, both of them developed uh, eager or, 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 or uh, aspiration for power. And uh, for that, uh, actually, I believe the, uh, the Islamists and, or the, actually the NCP uh, were highly around both of them. Uh, and they uh, made sure that uh, lots of lack of, uh, of trust to, the, to develop between the two. And uh, I believe that where both of them are made to, 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 to turn into more uh, into enemies rather than uh, the friendship that uh, joined them. To the extent that if you look at what happened in 2019, because of the direct relation between Al-Burhan and Hamidi, Al-Burhan solely uh, cancelled a very important uh, article in the Rapid Support Force uh, law, which gave the, uh, the, the uh, head of the army uh, the power to marry or to dismantle uh, the Rapid Support Force. He did right. it because of, of this direct relationship. Okay. Now, things because of this development, of course, uh, the Sudanese uh, political uh, the Sudanese armed forces is the uh, national uh, uh, army of the of the country. They couldn't take the the fact that there is a another uh, uh, very uh, enormous power, military power, to come into uh, into their into their uh, uh, challenging. So for that, a lot of 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 of. Uh, of um, Lack of trust and of uh, of anger. Okay, uh, let's bring in Dr. Alaeddin. What about trust in the process, Dr. Alaeddin? Because some people say, look, the entire process of the framework agreement was pretty much rushed and and it was ad hoc, and the international community was really just hoping to wrap it up really quickly uh, so that so that um, you know they can celebrate the the signing of a, of a new agreement. To what extent do you think that the actual political process itself? Uh, accelerate this confrontation between the rapid support forces and the army? No, it, 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 it didn't. It didn't. Let's speak frankly. Let's speak frankly. Yeah, the two guys uh, have uh, a wish or eager for power. But one guy said that he is with the political process. The other guy said, yeah, he's the political process, but in his way, is in not, uh, in, 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 by not the way that democracy should be there. There is no, they cannot have democracy, the army cannot have democracy as they like. They want independence from the civilian leadership. They want SSR to be away from the civilian leadership, to be under their command. It cannot be like this. It cannot be, there is no democracy as such. They want, they can have such like uh, a sharing or different centers of power, but there is no democracy. This is the main concept. This is the main issue. Yeah. Maybe, yes, I can say that both of them have eager for power, but maybe Hemeti wants this eagerness for power after the transition. He wants to come by a civilian uh, like uh, leadership, by elections, maybe. But right now, he is accepting the SSR and the democratic transition. But Burhan is not accepting the SSR with the essence of democratic transition and the principles right now. Right, but if we fast forward to today and what's happening right now, Dr. Alaeddin, both sides, this is what, this is the language that's coming out uh, from both sides. You have uh, Hamati, just allow me, you have Hamati, the military uh, calling for the dismantling of, uh, uh, quote, a rebellious militia, and then you have Hamati 
saying that the armed forces chief, that is Burhan, is a criminal. So what does this language actually signal to you in terms of, in terms of what happens next and how long this is going to continue? We, 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 we were, we were as, as, as a political uh, or a, like activists or the FFC or the, the parties who signed the framework agreement, we are both, we are always saying that we need a one national army with a good intention or a national uh, doctrine. This was not there, neither in the army or neither in the militia. So that was the essence of the DDR. Who was accepting this DDR in the way that it should be was the rapid support forces, speaking frankly. The army was not, okay? And that was the causing the problem because the Muslim Brotherhoods were much indeed inside the army. And these people inside the army, like Kabashi, Ibrahim Jabir, and so, they were really against the framework agreement and against the political process. That was clearly shown when Kabashi started to speak in loud, in gathering, about the framework agreement and about so and so and so, while he was quiet for a long time. I think okay. this last workshop with the SSR that Let makes me bring the Muslim in Brotherhood inside the army very alarmed. Let me bring in Maryam for a moment. Maryam, you can comment, you can comment on what Dr. Alaeddin is saying, but I also just want to ask you to give us a feel of, of what it's actually like being in Khartoum right now and what people are, are feeling and what they're saying. Uh, my first question is Dr., to Dr. Ala. Where, where, where do we go from here? I mean, we've reached the point where there's actually fighting in the, in the streets of the capital. So where do we go? You know, calling Burhan a criminal and Burhan designated the RSF as a militia, an outlaw militia, is not good news for us as Sudanese. So where do we go from here? We've been, all of us have been stuck at home. We don't know what's happening outside. We hear of these, the numbers of casualties of those who are injured, those who've been killed. We know nothing of what is happening. And we put our faith in the politicians, in the parties, in the negotiators to get us out of the quagmire. But if anything, they pushed us back further down in this quagmire. So my question to you, Ms. Doctor, uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Maryam and Dr. Ala, where do we go from here? What's, okay. the next, what's next going to happen? Let's How hear what they have to sure say. Let's bring in Maryam. Maryam, go ahead. Where, where, where does Sudan go from this here? This is the question. This is a very serious thing. What happened is unprecedented. This is, uh, it, it, it is so irresponsible. It is so unacceptable that our army hits our, its own cities and uh, its own civilians. And now they are taking, it's, it's the prison inside the neighborhoods. Now almost every house they have uh, gun uh, shots uh, at their, at their windows. So many people lie inside their homes. We are stuck for the last uh, 38 or more uh, hours not having any supplies. Uh, the electricity is out. We run out of uh, gas for, for even the people who have uh, uh, generators and so on. It is a very serious, and, and, and people, uh, so many people are stuck in the airport. So many people are stuck in the streets. Uh, there is no safe. I have been trying all day to have a way, safe path through the ICRC and the Sudanese Red Crescent with the Rapid Support Force and the staff. At least I could get uh, the three of them staff and the ICRC and the, Rapid, uh, and the uh, Sudanese Red Cross, but I couldn't have any access to the Rapid Support Force to, save, to, to, to provide for some uh, routes. 
actually the problem is really what is happening now in Sudan is unprecedented and okay, we so, cannot so can we cannot talk resolved? about it, it, uh, uh, let, let, uh, me Mariam, let me just ask you this because there is diplomatic pressure we understand there have been phone calls that have been made to uh, to both camps in Sudan uh, the U.S. Secretary of State has released a statement. The U.N. Secretary General. Uh, will this diplomatic pressure make True, any difference? And there is a PSC. Right. There, there is a PSC uh, 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 meeting today. Tomorrow there is the U.N. Security Council. But unless we, the Sudanese, see the, 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 the development in this and we unify ourselves against this, what happened is unacceptable. Uh, having uh, both, uh, we cannot compare Sudanese armed forces to any other force. Uh, we, that's why it was one of the essence of the, our political operation is to have one Sudanese army that is professional, that is national. So that's why it was part of our job for this uh, political uh, operation to have merger of the uh, uh, of the peace uh, agreement militias and of the of, of the rapid support. Okay, let's bring in Dr. Ala Adin just because we're going to be running out of time. So how, how Dr. Ala Adin, uh, next yeah. steps, next I steps, think, who uh, who think, can help us use this? What about countries that have regional interests in in Sudan? For example, uh, countries yeah. like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. Yeah. This, this is quite important question. The, the, two, the countries in the region have two positions. Either one of the position of a friendship that they want to solve uh, the issue and they want a democratic transition path in Sudan. And there is other countries that they don't want the democratic transition path in Sudan and they want the conflict or they want the armed leadership. And the second one is Egypt, definitely. Let's say frankly, Egypt was spoiling the agreement. Egypt's position was bad for the framework agreement. Egypt's position was bad for and negative for the political process. They are looking for an army leadership. They are not looking for a civilian leadership. They are not interested in democratic transition path, unlike Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and other regions and international committee. And Egypt had tried to spoil the agreement was much and much and much before with the leading of the ambassador here and with the meeting that was organized in Cairo for the democratic coalition. And they came with a statement that they are with the army. And we should go back to the political process. That was there with the SSR. Dr. Allah, don't you think the onus is also, is also on our army? to stand up and be an independent and be a source that, it's, that, it, that it works for the country. Our army continuously for the past 30, 40 years has always bowed down and followed the needs of other parties, you know, regional parties or regional countries. In the, it has never stood up for us. And what's happening right now Neither is proof of that, neither, that the army does not care about neither, the people. Neither the, the army, army neither the army is a national army, neither the army is a national army, and neither the militia is a national army. They are both I, having negatives, and they are both should be in an SSR and a DDR and the civilian leadership and and under international supervision. Okay, let me just jump in there because we are running out of time. I, I just want to get more of a sense of what's happening right now on the ground because uh, there are reports um, I'll ask you I'll ask you this um, uh, Mariam if, if you may know uh, the, the fighting in fact is uh, Dalia excuse me fighting is not confirmed to the capital the clashes we understand now 
are in the northern province. They're in Darfur region, Port Sudan on the Red Sea. Uh, these are porous borders, aren't they? So do they risk becoming flashpoints, do you think, for a wider conflict? How dangerous is this? Well, I just read a, a, a report or, an, or a post saying that Chad has reinforced its borders because they're afraid of a spillover from, from Darfur into their borders. And I spoke to family in Port Sudan, and they said yesterday it was really bad, but today it's a bit calmer. But Darfur is not calm. I mean, if we think Khartoum is bad, you're talking about a state that is the size of Western, of Western European countries. And, it, you know, Sudan is a big country. The, the, our, we have no set borders. Our borders, like we said, are very porous. So there is that fear of a, of a spillover effect. So what do we do then? And the same thing with what happened with, you know, with the, with the capture of the Egyptian soldiers. What is Egypt going, what's Egypt's reaction is going to be? These are their soldiers. They were here for joint military drills. They've been captured. What's going to happen? And I think we need to get away from all the politics talk like this person failed or this person did not and just try to think practical and try to think what can we do? What steps can we take right now to put an end to what's happening to de-escalate? Because well, I'll give you the really final bad. word on that. I'll give you the final word on that because we did hear uh, from Dr. Alaeddin and Maryam on that. But what do you think needs to be, be done next? Is it the diplomatic pressure um, that can help? Or no, I think it? diplomacy is not going to work. I think basically they need to yank those who have interest and those who have a sway over whether it's Hemiti or Burhan to really step up. And I think this is where the role of the likes of the EU, the Troika, the USA, and the likes of the Saudi government and the UAE and Egypt really, otherwise it's going to come into their borders. I don't think Egypt wants any any more problems on their borders. They have enough problems of their own. They don't want to have another border issue. There, uh, the geo, geopolitical strategic location of, of Sudan means it can affect the Ethiopia on the one hand, the Eritrea. Something needs to be done, and they need to really step up. I am tired of all these condemnation statements coming up from the likes of the UN and the U, US foreign, uh, 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 foreign Ministry and the UK. They're useless. They do nothing. We need action. They need to, someone needs to step up, pull back these two men, de-escalate, right. and then we take it from there. Because what's happening right now, it does not bode well for the near future. Okay. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Maryam Al-Mahdi, Alaeddin Nugug, and Dalia Mohammed Abdel Munhim. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. For further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. Join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is AJ Inside Story from myself and the entire team. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye for now. And uh, that was an analysis of uh, the current security situation uh, inside the Republic of Sudan, the political and economic dimensions of the existing crisis, uh, where uh, open clashes uh, between the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese Armed Forces. Uh, we'll continue to cover uh, this story. And in fact, uh, if you want to read about what's going on in Sudan, just log on to the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a musical break. We'll be back with our concluding segment. I'd rather be lonely than to 
Welcome back. And uh, that was the voice of uh, the legendary uh, Candy Staten uh, with the track entitled I'm Just a Prisoner. And you're here at the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, April the 16th, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And right now we want to move into a rare archival audio file, um, which uh, is from June 20th of 1964. And, of course, this uh, was a radio program uh, over WNBC AM uh, in New York City. And, of course, uh, the um, program uh, featured uh, some important uh, figures at that time uh, during uh, the struggle uh, for African-American liberation uh, during the mid-1960s. Now, one, uh, one in this uh, radio series of an all-night shows, noted for its lively topical discussions uh, sparked by the host, Long John, program already in progress. As the tape begins, uh, features Malcolm X, uh, actor P.J. Sidney, uh, author Charles E. Silberman, and attorney Martin Berger discussing issues important to African-Americans who are referred to uh, throughout as Negroes. Nebels uh, begins by reading telegrams from the listening audience, addressing topics such as giving the American Negro an identity, uh, finding a common denominator they can all relate to, and looking to the future rather than the past. Malcolm X then examines the importance of honest Communication between the races, a telegram criticizing the use of the term Negro as derogatory leads to a heated discussion on this issue. Uh, Sidney stresses that worrying about terminology isn't as important as remedying the racial situation, while Malcolm X argues in favor of having African-Americans choose their own terms of identification as a means of empowerment. Silverman comments that he believes the African-American people have a problem with apathy and self-hatred, having been in subservient relationships to whites. African-Americans need to acquire political, economic, and social power to affect the community in a positive way. And um, let's listen in uh, to uh, 
segment uh, of uh, this broadcast, uh, which lasted uh, for several hours. Uh, This is uh, from WNBC Radio on June 20th of 1964, out of New York City, uh, featuring uh, Malcolm X, El Hodge, Malik Shabazz, uh, Charles D. Silberman, among others. Let's listen in. It's like the white man. But the white American can go to Africa. And you have many white Americans, especially in Lagos and Ibadan in Nigeria, as school teachers and in other, uh, in, other, in other professions. You have Afro-Americans over there also. And no one has any difficulty well, well, adjusting to the, cultural, uh, to the culture and also to the climate. Now, wait, wait. wait. You're, making, you're, you're mixing things here a little bit. The people who live uh, in very cosmopolitan surroundings, whether it's in Lagos, because as a matter of fact, you know Ben in Monmouth, uh, he's, he's a, a painter, a Nigerian painter, who, with whom I was friendly when I lived in London. Uh, I think that people in, in cosmopolitan situations, whether it's New York or London or Lagos, are pretty much the same. This is quite a different thing from being a part of the culture in the sense of the culture of the people in the street. You would have just as much difficulty going into the Kentucky Hills right here in this country, back in the backwoods. I don't deny that. So, at all. so what, all I'm trying to show you is that you evidently have the impression that most of Africa is woods or jungle, and that there are no cosmopolitan cities there. If you're the type of person who wants to live in the in the in the jungle, you can live in the jungle. If you want to live in a cosmopolitan city, you can live in the city. But you can do the same thing in this country, and you find just as great a variety uh, at a, in different, just as many levels of culture in, in this country as you find on the African continent. Gentlemen, let me interrupt here for a moment to take care of some business. A couple of telegrams. One, will you please tell what happened to Dr. Shepard, signed E. Miller of Red Bank, New Jersey. I can only tell you this about Dr. Shepard. They were under the impression that he would be released the early part of uh, June on some legal technicality, and it didn't work out that way. I understand the judge has not made a final decision and will not do so until the early part of July. When we get the information, we'll pass it on to you. Here's a lady, Helen M. Lawler. Have you no decency? How can you report serious injury to Mr. Kennedy and other persons and then go on into a spiel for silverware? Well, I would just like to say this, uh, uh, Mrs. Lawler, or Miss Lawler. We have special times that we do various things. I, I trust that you wouldn't expect me to dedicate an hour to, an hour of silence to the fact that Mr. Ted Kennedy has been uh, injured in a plane crash. We certainly, uh, at the time of the assassination of um, late President Kennedy, we were off the air with all commercials, I think, for two and a half days. I'm not mistaken. Now, we do have certain ways of running the show. When we get a bulletin, we read the bulletin, and if there has, if there's a station identification according to the FCC that must be given at that particular time, we do it. And if there's a commercial, we do that too. If you feel that I lack decency, this is your privilege to have that opinion of me. Well, that's all for these telegrams. The others are not relevant to our discussion of the morning. We're talking this morning with Charles E. Silberman. I don't know what's wrong with me this morning. I use that illness. The title of the book that Mr. Silberman has written is Crisis in Black and White, and it's published by a random house. And I would just like to say this to our listeners, because we naturally reach a portion of New York listeners as well as covering some 40 states. If you read the review in the New York Times a couple of Sundays ago by Mr. Redding, and it was a bad review. I would suggest to you, 
before you make a final decision whether the book has merit or not, to read it yourself. Because I've never in the eight years of broadcasting had as many people seated around the table in one evening reading about it, a book as much as these men have about crisis in black and white. I don't say that my guests agree with everything that Mr. Silberman has said in the book, but they feel it's an excellent book and that he's done a wonderful job in writing this book. And so I hope that you have a chance of reading it. Malcolm X is with us this morning, P.J. Sidney, and Martin Berger, attorney. I understand you were trying to get in there before to say something, and you just didn't know how to cut it, right? Right. You could do it with a typewriter, but not with a microphone. Well, let, I can only speak secondhand uh, here, Malcolm, but there's an awful, uh, a large volume of literature now suggesting that a great many American Negroes do have a problem when they visit Africa in several ways. One is a certain degree of ambivalence about their relationship with Africa. One, uh, one Negro friend uh, said to me, well, when I land and uh, meet somebody uh, whose great-great-great-grandfather uh, sold my great-great-grandfather into slavery, should I uh, thank him or slight him? Uh, Africa inflicts... It reminds me of what Joseph did in the Bible. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brethren. And that, but, but after being sold into slavery, he became a ruler in that same land, and he forgave his own brothers who sold him. But he never forgave Pharaoh who bought him. It's not, it's, not just, it's not just having been sold into slavery. I think part of it is the picture of Africa which Americans uh, have taught uh, for several centuries now. So that Africa where most Negroes, has been a great source of pain. This is the shame in, in their background. When they think of Africa, they think of the picture in their geography textbook of the naked savage holding a spear. But they're getting away from that now. They're getting away from it, but this creates a problem. Another problem uh, has to do simply with the degree to which the comforts and conveniences of modern life uh, are taken for granted, and when they get to Africa, uh, in the same way as when they get to uh, almost any European country, except uh, perhaps for uh, Britain, the telephones uh, don't work terribly well, the plumbing doesn't work terribly well, uh, the air conditioning doesn't work, or it's non-existent. Uh, People's conception of time is different. There are cultures, there are the questions of the conveniences we take for granted, which make life different, and they become very conscious of these things. And then there are cultural differences. Uh, the question of time, uh, for example. Uh, in Africa, in a great many European societies, all through the Middle East, uh, time has a totally different uh, it plays a totally different role than it does here. People are an hour late uh, for an appointment. Uh, this is simply taken for granted. Uh, this this bothers them. There, there seem to be uh, these are these are the reports that Harold Isaacs in his book, The New World of 
Anglo-American. I, I uh, don't think any person has ever written in a manner to do more, uh, greater, dis, uh, greater uh, injustice to the relations between Africans and Anglo-Americans than Isaac. And in his book, it looks like he is skillfully uh, trying to make it appear that it's impossible for the Afro-American to go back to the African continent and be accepted by his African brother or fit into or adjust himself to African society. And much of what Isaac points out in his book, uh, I found to be other than true uh, in my visits over there. Mm. Now, I, I, met, I, I, I was with the Afro-American colony, let us say, in uh, several of the different African countries. And these same problems that Isaac uh, pointed out, uh, I found them, I found not to be true. The Afro-Americans whom I met were very, very happy. They had fit right into the economic system, into the political system, and were adjusting themselves to the entire cultural pattern. And I can see how you yourself know of the many whites, the Europeans, who have settled on the African continent. And they haven't had this problem of readjustment. Yeah, well, these are the people who stayed. Uh, the people who, therefore, the ones who stayed are the ones who were able to adjust. Uh, Richard Wright went to Africa with a great expectations and uh, he found it a very shattering experience because he, he suddenly became he became conscious as, as TJ said of, of how much of an American he was I, I'm not I'm great daughter is living in a crowd right now and uh, she was telling me while I was there that the reason she's in a crowd was because she felt that uh, the world misunderstood what her father had written about Africa and she has moved to Accra to try and uh, build a better bridge of understanding or to regain some of what uh, she felt her father lost by this misunderstanding uh, of even Africans uh, concerning that which he, read about, uh, which he wrote about his experiences in Africa. And I, I hope I don't appear dogmatic, but I cannot buy uh, from anyone uh, the, the idea that there is something about the African continent and African culture that's so repulsive that the Afro-American can adjust himself mm. into it. I don't know if you injected the word repulsive. Now, I say, just a minute. I, I, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to let you build up any straw men. Nobody said repulsive. Uh, uh, actually, you're also seeing this as sort of either or. There are quite evidently people who adapt very well, but also there are other people who feel as Wright felt, and I don't think that his daughter is going to change the fact that he felt as he felt at that time. She may feel differently now, and there may be some other people who feel differently. But uh, there is a considerable body of opinion that we are Americans, and I don't really find anything that wrong with being an American. I, 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 the only thing I find uh, uh, difficult is when people deny me the opportunity to be American as fully as I would like to be. So uh, I think that let us not make a fetish of uh, going back someplace. I, I, you know, I don't think that, I don't want you to get the impression that I'm speaking of a physical return or migration to Africa. Uh, in, my, in my travels to Africa, I came away of the opinion that the Afro-American would be better off remaining physically in America. But at the same time, he would have to migrate uh, culturally, psychologically, and philosophically back to Africa to regain some kind of spiritual bond, which in turn would help enhance our political and social and economic position 
right here in digital science. Well, I think that I think that, that we're not too far apart in the sense that I feel that the American Negro has to uh, get some sense of identity and some sense of pride. We'll never, however, just a moment. However, I think that uh, what Charles has proposed is a much more likely way, is likely of attainment on one hand, and also a much more palatable way to most Negroes. And that is, he feels, and I hope I represent you well, I wish you would come in if you don't like what I'm saying, uh, uh, that Negroes have to get some power over their own destiny right in the context of what I insist is their own country. This is my country. See, I, 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 won't, I won't have it any other way. And he feels, and I certainly share this view, that Negroes have to have, have to acquire some power. Power, I agree with it. Yes, and, but not, this power does not have to be in the framework of any African imagery. See, that's where, that's where you and I are differing on this. No, I, I'm saying that you, gain, you get your life or your strength from your roots, from your cultural roots. And the thing that makes the black man in America differ, differ from all other minorities in this country or people anywhere is the fact that we have been cut off from our cultural roots. And this, the process that was used to do this was the skillful uh, propaganda that the American educational system created by giving us a negative picture, number one, of Africa, and, a, and an even more negative picture, number two, of the African people. And as soon as we bought that negative picture of Africa and the African picture, we had a negative image of ourselves. And you will find that as the African nations have emerged and have gotten into a position to change the negative image of Africa and its people from, positive, from negative to positive, that same change has undergone, uh, it has, has uh, developed right here in the mind of the American Negro. We, our people are becoming more positive, more filled with uh, racial confidence, racial pride, and have a tendency to stick together in unity and harmony and go forward. But as long as the image in our mind of Africa was something negative, cannibalistic, and savage, you'll find that most Negroes were ashamed of their color, their features, and everything else that was characteristic of it. Excuse me, TJ. I think we have to deal with this on, on two levels. One is eradicating the traditional view of Africa as a place of savagery, a place that uh, had no culture, no history. I think this is essential. I think pride in race is uh, important, uh, perhaps crucial, whether as a transition or as a permanent uh, thing. I don't, I don't know. I think on the other side, though, as once this pride in race begins to get established, as you see the African states. Uh, walking, emerging on the international scene, the question of what specifically the relationship will be between the American Negro and uh, Africa begins to get very complex. How you feel a great deal of pride when uh, Ghana was created, from a, emerged on the world scene, but how do you feel? Uh, when Nkrumah begins imprisoning all of his political opponents and uh, <clears throat> passing laws which will, which in effect, convert. Let's stop again. He's not imprisoning political opponents, he's imprisoning Africans who have allowed themselves to become agents of what is known as neo colonialism. And in the West, 
uh, anytime an African uh, shows any kind of independence of the West, he's classified as a dictator. And when he takes the uh, measures necessary to protect the freedom of the country, they say he's imprisoning political opponents. Are you sure you haven't been brainwashed now? Well, I, you don't see me. If I've been brainwashed, it hasn't been by America. Well, that may be, but do you think that that's the only place that you can be brainwashed? I would rather be brainwashed by my brother than by a stranger. Oh, that very well may be, but let us not discount the possibility that you can be brainwashed. Uh, even, even by your brother. Uh, I was in, in Ghana. And I've never been to a country where I felt more free, nor I saw, nor where I saw the people of that country exercising more freedom than in Ghana. I saw none of this dictatorial uh, activity that is projected in the Western press. They wouldn't let you see it. No. Now, now, look, look. I'm not, I'm not knocking Ghana. That is not my object. But I do think that it's very naive. And I'm sorry to have to use this word. You can use any words you it, want. It, it's, it, it's very naive to believe that. Ghana is all that's good. I, I can understand. For instance, if you said to me that in this transitional period, and this has happened in many countries, that maybe it has to go through a phase of dictatorship, that maybe in order to get some kind of uh, order, some kind of uh, uh, form, some kind of stability, that it has to go through this. If you say this, then I accept it. But if you are going to whitewash everything that Nkrumah does... Whitewash or blackwash? Either way, whichever way you want to do it, you know. Uh, uh, but if, if you're going to wash it, whichever way, you know, uh, then I think that you are, are brainwashed as much as anybody could be brainwashed from the other no, side. And I, don't think, and I don't think the brainwashing looks any better from one side or the other. I'm telling you that when I was, I was only in Ghana for a week... When they showed you well, certain they, things. They showed me nothing. I was on, I was in Ghana for a week. They didn't show me anything. They, they let me go wherever I want, speak to whoever I wanted to speak to. And I found that everyone there felt free to speak his mind. He had, they had all of the freedom of speech that you have in this country. In fact, I made probably some more scabbing speeches there than I, than I have over here. Pro and con. Now, you made scabbing speeches. <laughs> let me let me let me try to let me try to shift the discussion a bit, Malcolm, because I think uh, I don't think we want to really get into a debate here as, as to whether Ghana is good or bad. The point the point that I'm making is that the Africans are human beings, and there are going to be uh, African societies that are good, African states which. Are bad. Let's uh, leave out our individual judgments as to which uh, which fall into which category. Uh, some of the African states uh, have a very strong French cultural uh, coloration. Some of them have a very strong English uh, cultural coloration, as well as their African background, because. Uh, several hundred years of French rule or British rule uh, also made some impression. And all I'm, all I'm suggesting is that the relation, precisely because American Negroes were so completely separated from their African background, reconstructing the relationship is going to be very complex. And I don't, uh, I don't quite, I don't quite see how it's uh, how it's going to be done. I'm not saying it, it can't. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm not opposing trying to do it. Was it an accident that it was done? Was it an uh, accident that we were cut off from our? No, country? of course it, it. It wasn't an accident. We're not 
we're not arguing. We're not arguing about that. I'm. I'm simply uh, arguing that having having been in the United States for several hundred years, having been separated for this time, there is uh, a separation, and that the solution, however important, uh, re-establishing some relationship with Africa may be. Uh, this is only one part of the solution, but the more important part, and it's an important part, I'm not, I'm not in any sense derogating it. I'm simply arguing that because the American Negro, for better or for worse, has to live his life in this country, uh, the solution has to be found very much more uh, here. And it's for this, uh, for this reason that I uh, place, well, I have a chapter on Africa and on the need to reestablish uh, some relationship. Uh, the, the more urgent, uh, if you will, or the more important part of, of the solution lies in uh, overcoming the sense of powerlessness, the can sense... You, can you overcome it if you don't know what caused it in the first place. Oh, yes, you can, you can, you, it seems to me you can recover from a disease without necessarily knowing the, the, the origins of it. I don't think, I don't think you have to know the origins of it. Example, for me, uh, was it an accident that we were cut off from our culture and, and was it necessary to cut us off from our culture in order to make us the slaves that we ultimately became? You want to establish blame, no, Malcolm. Not, not blame. We're not a manifested in blame. But this is what I like about this book, Crisis in Black and White. It points out there are too many facets of our condition today that the average Negro wants to duck. He wants to fight that. And until he can face up to the real low level that we were brought down to, we won't know what it will take to bring us out of it. The average Negro today wants to make believe that we haven't been, uh, had our neck broken. And he wants to walk around like his neck has been healed when he hasn't yet admitted that it was broken. Gentlemen, let me interrupt here for a moment talking with the author of the book titled Crisis in Black and White, Charles E. Silberman. Malcolm X, P.J. Sidney, and Martin Berger with us this morning. And I think at the time when I interrupted to take care of some business, you wanted to make a point, Charles. I think uh, we really are in closer agreement here than perhaps we've sounded. Uh, let me read just one paragraph from the ultimate source. Uh, page 184. <laughs> <laughs> I think this sums up how I feel uh, better than anything else I know, whether it's right or wrong. Uh, here's the way I put it in a book. It is in the United States, in short, and only in the United States, that American Negroes will be able to resolve their problem of identification. To be sure, Negroes must recapture their African past, because denying them a place in history has been one of the means whites have used to keep them down. And they must find some basis on which to relate to Africa, because denying that relationship has been central to Negro self-hatred. But building a bridge to Africa past and Africa present is simply a means of erasing the old stigma of race. It is not a base on which Negroes can erect a new identity. For American Negroes have been formed by the United States, not by Africa. Africa gave them their color, 
that America gave them their personality and their culture. The central fact in Negro history is slavery. Negroes must come to grips with it, must learn to accept it, to accept it not as a source of shame, the shame is the white man, but as an experience that explains a large part of their present predicament. Only if they understand why they are what they are can Negroes change what they are. Identity is not something that can be found. It must be created. I, I buy that. But what you're admitting here is that the Negro is suffering from cultural colonialism. If I understand you correctly here, when you say uh, Africa gave them their color, but America gave them their personality and their culture. This is what in, in Africa today is referred to as cultural colonialism, that our personality is not the personality that stems from our basic nature, from our likes and dislikes, but it is a personality that has been forced upon us by the conditions under which we live. It's not our personality that we reflect uh, because we are free to do as we, as we please or, or as we like. But it's a personality that stems from slavery. And in uh, Eleanor, some writings of Eleanor Roosevelt that I read somewhere at some time or other, she pointed out that whenever a, uh, a person is denied his human rights, he doesn't have the opportunity to, to develop a personality. He, he can't, his, his own personality can't come to the fore. And in America, my contention is that the Negro has no personality. He doesn't know his personality until he, until he has complete freedom. And then in this uh, uh, atmosphere of complete freedom, he's able to develop uh, from his natural urges, likes and dislikes, a personality that's unique to, to, to him. Yeah, but the only disagreement is that you feel that it has, we have to go back and find this in Africa. And the point which Charles was just reading, and I was very much impressed with it, I, I uh, made an indication to quote this, uh, is that although these things have happened, although our original origin was in Africa, the fact remains that our personalities were made in America. And therefore, whatever identity we find has to be in this context, whether we like it or not. Yeah, personalities like Stephen Fetchett. Well, finding, finding... There must, be, there must be something between Stephen Fetchett and, and going all the way back to Ghana. Uh, I, 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 take Israel, take the Jews in this country. In this country, since Israel was established, the Jews don't migrate physically from America back to Israel. They stay here in America, but they do migrate culturally. A great many of them don't migrate culturally to Israel either. Still, uh, a great many of them don't, and they succeed, and they and, they, and they fulfill themselves quite well without migrating, but even even intellectually. Still, you will find that the American Jews support Israel. Uh, they migrate culturally. They migrate philosophically, psychologically, and this cultural, philosophical uh, migration of the American Jew back to Israel, though he stays here physically has helped or enhanced the political and economic position of the Negro, of the Jew in America. What? All I'm saying is that just as the Jew can stay here and still have cultural links with Israel, the 22 million Afro-Americans here in the United States can also remain here, but we'll find that we will have a stronger spiritual force, stronger bond, stronger unity if we forge some kind of cultural... I'm really arguing, Malcolm, you, is that when you use the phrase, we have to forge some kind of bonds, that this is a very complex problem. I agree uh, this is a fine thing to do, but and I agree that the creation of the State of Israel uh, helped uh, Jewish self-confidence enormously in the United States. There was a great sense of pride to see uh, a Jewish state 
subsequently created. But the relationship uh, between American Jews and Israel uh, goes back for several thousands of years. There, there is a tradition of identification uh, with Israel as the spiritual homeland that was not destroyed uh, the way as the American Negro's relationship with Africa this is my point. was no, destroyed. Is my point. No, my, you're, my you're point. You're making a different point. My, no, my, no, point, my point is that uh, that because the American Negro's relationship with Africa was destroyed, recreating it is a complex thing. Uh, and all I can tell you is that while the relationship between the American Jew and Israel is extremely important, uh, it's not. Uh, completely a bed of roses either. There are real problems uh, in both directions uh, in, in the relationship uh, which are beginning to emerge. And I can tell you uh, that as a uh, very strong lifelong Zionist, when I went to Israel last summer, I had the kind of experience uh, E.J. was describing that American Negroes have uh, in Africa. Uh, I was enormously impressed with the country. Uh, I want very much to go back and visit it again. I, I think it's one of the most exciting places on earth. Uh, but I was enormously conscious, more conscious than I had ever been before, of how much I'm an American. Uh, and the reason was uh, simply that the day-to-day -day culture of Israel is essentially the culture of Western Europe. But these, these uh, disappointments didn't make you uh, think being a Zionist. No, I, and I'm, I'm not speaking of it in terms of a disappointment. I'm simply saying that I was aware of differences uh, that didn't exist uh, before. Uh, because this is this is not an American but culture. Still, I'm gonna, but it still didn't make you think no, of No, well, no. Well, but the point is that after Americans are the same way. Well, we uh, realize we're going to have problems, just as you have problems trying to identify with Israel. But uh, we can surmount these problems and still forge uh, spiritual bonds with our African brother. That doesn't mean we have to go back over there. If, if brothers like Sydney want to stay here, and my, and I want to go back, then we can. I can help him from there, and he can help me from here. I'll send your care package. Okay. Now, I, I have found, and this this has been brought up very frequently, and I'm a little surprised now from this you bring it up, because other people have made the comparison between uh, Negroes' loss of heritage and the uh, Jews' displacement, so to speak. And I always find this comparison very unfortunate. Because in the worst times of Jewish oppression, they have always had among them some old Jew who could carry the word, who could tell the young people of their history. And by your own words before, we were cut off in a very different kind of way. And therefore, I think we should just drop the illustration of Israel altogether because there's just no comparison. There's just no comparison whatsoever. And I think that whatever identification we're going to make, it is all very well for us to have as a passing piece of knowledge that we did not come from nothing. But 
Beyond that, I think we have to forget it, not become preoccupied with, with any relationship to, to Africa, but rather, but rather to try to make our identification as Americans and as Americans with a particular kind of history. Particular kind like what? Like the history, which is very well known, which you know, the history of slavery and all that. You don't want to go back, you don't want to go back beyond slavery. I want to go, I want to know it academically, but I, I cannot emotionally, this doesn't do very much to me. And why do the people read the history of the Greek Empire, Roman Empire, and these other European? Oh, different people, different, different people read it for different purposes. Sometimes they read it to instruct them as to the way things have happened. Having the knowledge but, of the past gives you a better understanding of the present. Ah, understanding is one thing, but you're suggesting, I think you put it very clearly, an emotional bond, a spiritual bond. This is quite a different thing from an academic understanding and a, and a profiting from an academic understanding. And I think you're mixing these two. No, uh, I think that Malcolm has, is making a very valid point, and I think then he goes too far with it. I think that he is making a valid point that there must be a recreation of the African past in order to indicate not only to the Negro, but also to the white, the fact that there was a great civilization created in Africa uh, far beyond anything that many of us know about. I think Mr. Silverman has indicated to many of us who haven't having the slightest idea of the, of, of the facts of history, that there are, are areas that are completely blind to us. And I think the Negro should know it, and I think the White should know it. I don't think there's any question about it. However, you're saying something beyond what the quotation Mr. Charles had read you. He said that, to be sure, Negroes must recapture their African past. And I quite agree. I imagine you do agree, but you go beyond that. You say there must be the creation of spiritual, moral, psychological, etc. bonds with present-day African culture. And it strikes me that this is something that's impossible to do. Right. My, my parents, who are who are uh, immigrants from Europe, had a cultural background that's completely foreign to mine. I couldn't cre recreate it in the slightest. They couldn't recreate it after a half a century of living in America. Uh, you take the immigrant of ten years, they couldn't recreate their past. There the new cultural schemes that have been created. Now to say to the African, you have something to offer. To the uh, to the uh, American Negro, the Afro-American, it's something that I just can't conceive of. I'm saying that the Afro-American has something to offer to the African. No and question. The African has something to offer to us. We have a history, a history that you share in common, that should be known, and should be pr and, and pride should be taken. It's just more than that. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I think it's not an accident that whites in America have a feeling of superiority where Negroes are concerned. It stems from the fact that even whites have been taught that Negroes have no past, they have no culture, they have no civilization. It's not an accident that Negroes have a feeling of inferiority to the extent where they actually uh, demand that whites build housing, build schools, almost everything that whites do for themselves. Our people expect whites to do for us too because uh, we feel inadequate. Well, all of this stems from the fact that historically in the school, in the school books and other media, we have been taught that the black man came out of the jungle, out of the bush. He has no culture, he has no civilization, and today many of our people believe this, and many whites believe it. So all I'm saying is that one of the best ways to uh, destroy the racism that creates this uh, white supremacist attitude among many whites is to reacquaint whites with the true facts of black history. And one of the best ways to destroy the feeling of inferiority that our people have is to reacquaint us with the true facts about the black man. We're, we're agreed. We're agreed on this, uh, Malcolm. I think the question I was raising was simply 
the basis on which a relationship between American Negroes today and Africa today is to be established. The, the importance of uh, teaching the history of Africa, of rooting out uh, this insane notion of Africa as a place of savagery, this, this is absolutely crucial. P.J. Uh, had said that uh, the case of the Jews, there had always been some old person to teach the history. It was much more than that. Uh, the, the Jewish religion is identical with the history of the Jews. The, the, the two are identical. History, the religion is built around the history. The Bible, yes. The culture, the religion, uh, is the history. The, the Bible is a historical, is a historical work. Uh, and they, the Passover uh, service ends every year with the phrase "next year in Jerusalem." This, uh, the tie, the tie was never broken. Uh, now, in the case of the American Negro, the tie was broken. It's essential to why was it broken? Teach. We're agreed on. We're agreed on why it was broken. Uh, it was broken as part of the effort to dehumanize yeah. the Negro. This, we're this we're agreed. We're agreed on this. We're agreed on the necessity to reestablish that history, to rewrite, to bring Africa back into the history of the world. The problem is, where do we go? Where do we go from here? Go right back to and, that. And, yeah. and all, and really, all I'm saying is that I I would disagree with uh, Marty. I think an effort should be made to establish some kind of. of cultural tie with Africa. It's just the problem is how and in what way. And all I'm saying is that the effort is going uh, to involve to be pretty complicated. You put your finger right on the, the nucleus of it when you went, when you use the word dehumanize. Uh, our the, the taking of our culture or cut culture from us, the destroying of our cultural ties actually resulted in the dehumanizing of what today has become known as twenty two million Afro Americans. As long as the Jews retained their cultural ties, their cultural roots, and therefore they were able to withstand all of the tortures of hell and still uh, stay together in unity and harmony and go forward. The thing that destroyed us was when they destroyed our cultural roots. So I just don't see how any program can be uh, initiated among Afro-Americans today if it doesn't have within it something uh, that in some way shows our people what our cultural roots were, what part cultural roots play not only in the past, but also in our current history. Well, I want to say something here. You know, uh, as I'm listening, you know, we've done a lot of shows with psychologists and all, and there, there are many schools of psychology that believe that if you dig and you find out where this initial trauma was, that this of itself causes, uh, you know, therapy. Actually, there are other people that I am more in agreement with who feel that it's very well to know that, but it's only a kind of incidental piece of information. It's nice to know. But actually, you have to take the situation as you find it in the present. And I'm drawn to that kind of thinking, and I think that uh, Charles in his book is in many respects drawn to that. The idea that just letting people know, and indeed, in your case, Malcolm, it seems to me that you uh, want to not only let them know, but also to dwell on, that you feel that this will of itself bring about some kind of transformation in attitude and transformation in self-image. 
I think that that is only a coincidental thing good to have, but the repair to be made in the present and in terms of the present situation and the present need. Yes, well, they, Malcolm, we began this discussion when Malcolm raised the question was uh, the nursery school education I was proposing enough, and I said no, of course it's not enough. And uh, what I think is the crucial chapter in the book, uh, entitled the chapter is entitled "The Revolt Against Welfare Colonialism." Uh, I say in the last analysis, however, Negro children will be able to climb out of their slums en masse only if they see their parents doing the same. Only if the adults of the community are involved in action on their own behalf. For it is the disorganization of the community at large, the evidence on all sides that their parents are unable to control their own behavior, unable to impose sanctions on people who threaten the community's well-being, that persuades the young that the cards are stacked against them, that the omnipresent they will not permit them to make it in any legitimate form and so leads them into apathy, withdrawal, or rebellion. And then I go on, but can this be done? Can the adults be mobilized? So the answer, quite simply, is that it has been done uh, in Chicago, in the case of the Woodlawn Organization. And what has troubled me about uh, so much of the protest movement in recent months is what troubled me about that meeting at Town Hall Monday night, where you were in the audience and I was on the platform, Malcolm, is that it seems to me that there is a terrible vacuum uh, in existence that no one, with the exception of the Woodlawn Organization in Chicago, uh, seems to be trying to fill. What was the Town Hall meeting? I'm unfamiliar with that, Charles. Oh, this was a meeting... Uh, sponsored by an organization called the Association of Artists for Freedom. Uh, it was founded by James Baldwin. What was it, a symposium? Uh, it was a symposium on the uh, Negro Revolution and the white backlash. Uh, it should have been titled the Black uh, Backlash because I think the whites caught it. Uh, <laughs> well, they, they caught it. I, I found it very disturbing. Uh, not because of the enormous anger that that was expressed. I knew this kind of anger existed, but because the uh, Negro intellectuals on the platform with me, it seemed to me, were refusing to think in any kind of programmatic terms, refusing to think in terms of politics, in terms of organization, in terms of action. They were just hating and just hating they were expressing anger uh they were not they were denouncing the existing civil rights groups but uh not proposing any basis on which any kind of new organization could be created it seems to me what is central i think this is just a bit unfair uh to say that they were just hating and not proposing any kind of uh, real solution is putting the burden upon these Negro artists. No, I can't buy that. The burden is on America. You, you see, now, all of these Negro artists who are on that platform have lent their 
talents and their image and their prestige to the entire civil rights movement since it has been moving, no matter how slow, but since it has been moving. And uh, they have lent their uh, weight to the struggle of the various Negro leaders of the civil rights movement. Now, they've become frustrated. They've become disenchanted. All of the things that they hoped would materialize have failed to materialize. Now, if they reflect this hopelessness and if they reflect this disenchantment, I don't think that they are the ones to be condemned. I think that this in itself points up the failure of the system in which we live. Hold on just a moment. No, I, I, I can't go along with that. Uh, actually, I think that in any instance when you make a criticism of other people, and I have on this show uh, been very critical of the civil rights uh, leadership, I think that you do have a responsibility to propose something in its stead. And I don't think that you can always go back to the very beginning each time, Malcolm, and talk about the system. Yeah, it's true. The system is as bad as you say it is. But then we have to move on from there, and we have to, certainly even talking here tonight, unless we have some proposals to make, unless we have some uh, enlargements on ideas to present, we have no business even talking. You mean so, that every time that you feel that something is not right, that you cannot mention it unless you have some other solution? Not I think you should have something constructive to say. Yes, I think you should have something constructive to propose. In other words, if I don't like the way you're running the show, you know, I can just get off it, I know. But if I, actually, I should, <laughs> I should have some proposal. You know, I should have some... These are the proposals. I think they had proposals. For instance, John Killens uh, uh, brought about the importance. John Killens was one of the panelists. Brought about the uh, proposal to uh, elevate the civil rights struggle, or the freedom struggle of, of Afro-Americans from the level of civil rights to the level of human rights and taking it into the United Nations. I think this was a very progressive, very intelligent proposal. But he had no takers. He, and then he pointed out in the question period, how many of the white liberals now who had been so active in the civil rights struggle would support their efforts to get the uh, problem of the Negro before the United Nations and charge America with violation of the Negro's human rights? To me, this was a constructive uh, proposal. And maybe a constructive proposal in that it would uh, garner a great deal of publicity for the civil rights movement, but I wonder if there would not be more constructive proposal for uh, the civil rights movement and its critics within uh, the Negro community to concern itself about obtaining the clout that Mr. Uh, Silberman describes in his book that uh, Saul Eslinski did in, in uh, the Woodlawn uh, situation in Chicago, uh, probably one of the most fascinating political endeavors, political, I say, uh, that has occurred in our generation, in our, in our century. Uh, I, I think Mr. Uh, the Woodlawn situation is something that, uh, if for nothing else, your book deserves very wide reading, because I don't think... Uh, it has been widely publicized as it should be. And uh, a brief description, a Negro slum was organized by an outsider, but it built itself up by its bootstraps. What do you mean by outsider? By an outsider in the, fact, in, the, in the fact that the organizer, the generator of the organization, was not a member of the community, was not a Negro, was not someone within the civil rights movement, but it was a paid organizer who came in, uh, a beneficiary, if you will, of a foundation, uh, supported by white liberals uh, who did the job. It wasn't self-generating. It wasn't spontaneous. It didn't come from within the community. It came from without. However, there was a battle that had to be won. Apathy had to be licked. It was done and was successfully done. It strikes me that the critics uh, 
of the present white America, the, the so-called men of goodwill who sit back and do nothing, would do well to concern themselves about obtaining similar clout. But right here in Harlem, we've got a situation where registration, political registration for the right to vote, is so woefully under any other community in the entire city that the clout that, they, that is desperately needed is just not available. You may well say, what are they going to go to the polls for and whom are they going to vote for? But if that vast community in Harlem had the opportunity to vote, I think that the shift, the balance of power could so easily shift. Are you praying? Or, or I am praying. I'm praying that you will wrap it up for a moment so I can get in here. I, I, I think that you, you missed your point. I guess what you wanted to say, who can they vote for? Cora Walker, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Cora. <laughs> Let's uh, hit the rest here for just a moment to take care of some business. You know no, we're, uh, we've already... This is really a <clears throat> big show tonight. Everybody with all the cues around and all. All right, <clears throat> let's get back with our guest of the morning. Charles E. Silberman, author of the book Crisis in Black and White, which is published by Random House. Malcolm X, Martin Berger, and P.J. Sidney. Mr. Sidney is an actor. Martin Berger, attorney. Charles E. Silberman, author of the book Crisis in Black and White. Malcolm, what can we say what Malcolm X is? Uh, a dissatisfied uh, Afro-American who is striving to bring complete freedom, justice, and equality for the 22 million Afro-Americans in this country. Well, now, you also are the head of the Black Nationalist Movement. No, uh, I'm one of the many uh, people in Harlem who believe in black nationalism as the best political, economic, and social philosophy uh, mm -hmm. for our people. Uh, and I'm also the minister of the Muslim Mosque, mm -hmm. which has as its base the religion of Islam. I'm a Muslim, and uh, my religion is Islam. My political, economic, and social philosophy is black nationalism. Now, that's no connection with the organization that at one time you had it in, in the Eastern States. Uh, right. I'm not uh, You're completely divorced yes. from that yes. uh, organization. Yes. We have... Uh, where's Kai? Kai, you want to uh, come over here a moment? Pull up a chair here, because I'll let you read some of these while we're... I will get some of these. I'm going to give Kai this. These, these are some telegrams that have uh, been uh, coming in during the past uh, hour or so, and we might read these. Long John Neville, Watts, New York. History. Look at it both ways. The Europeans have the same problems they still have, and they caused the major conflict, and still are. Speculate what would have happened if you would have left us alone. Hello, Malcolm X, Oscar Robbins. What is he saying? Do you know Mr. Robbins? Uh, I probably do, but not by name. But what is he saying? Is he asking a question or making a statement? I think it's just a statement that he's making here, saying looking at it both ways. Huh. Fine. We have one more. I always say that. What? New York, Long John. Very bright man. Do it again. Alex Scudzo. 
S-K-O-D-Z-O-S. I was just going to ask, what was she talking about? Maybe it's better we don't ask. <laughs> John, who else? <laughs> Long John Neville, New York. Thank you, gentlemen, are missing one very important fact. That the Negro Americans do not have to go to Africa to regain their racial pride and culture. Pardon me. I... Welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, radio broadcast from June 20th, uh, 1964, uh, in New York City, and uh, featured uh, Malcolm X, Charles B. Silberman, among others. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, April the 16th, 2023. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music uh, of Wes Montgomery, uh, the jazz guitarist, live at Georgie's Jazz Club from 1961. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Thank you very much, and thank you, Mr. Clean. <laughs> we would like to open this set by playing a nice little tune entitled All of You.
Thank you very much. At this time, we would like to play a composition by Milt Jackson, the tune entitled Heart Strain. Thank you. 